RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain and today I interview Dave Cripps from Coalition Performance and also former strength and conditioning coach at Leicester Tigers. Uh, great interview. Um, Dave You know, kindly gave up his time to, to share his insights in working at Leicester and, and what he's doing now at Coalition Performance. Um, he's been fortunate enough to be at Leicester for a number of years and work all the way through the different age groups through the academy and into the first team so he gives a really good insight of um, different training emphasis at different stages um, and you know we, we chatted about loads of stuff <laughs> felt like we could have chatted for hours um, and then another thing uh, I think he, he goes into good detail is having a, a clear rationale based on science of what you're trying to um, affect as a strength and conditioning coach and what your training is trying to affect as a, as a player or an athlete um, and then making sure you're, you know, getting the most bang for from your buck with the the training you choose. So have a listen. I'm sure you're going to learn lots, uh, and let us know what you think afterwards. Hi, Dave. Uh, welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. Thanks for uh, you know making time in your schedule to come and have a chat with us. No, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Pleasure, Dave. Um, you're you're currently working for Coalition Performance, um, and. I guess what we want to pick your brains about, though, obviously the rugby side of things, you, you've got a lot of experience of your time working with Leicester Tigers. Um, so why don't you sort of tell us about how you got into strength and conditioning, your time uh, working at Tigers, and, and then how you kind of moved into coalition performance? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I started out like most of us, you know, uh, enjoyed training, enjoyed sport. I <laughs> wasn't particularly good at it, but uh, I worked hard at it. Um, scraped into university did my kind of undergraduate postgraduate degrees and I, I enjoyed the kind of research side of it but you know my, my real passion was uh you know it's fucking actually get, getting involved and actually training the stuff not just uh not just researching it so i spent a lot of time during that period over a number of years just getting experience wherever i could um you know interning visiting people networking um and multiple things that happened as a result of that led to me get, getting involved at um at leicester initially with the uh with the academy and it, re it really grew from there to be honest so I spent several seasons there um from i think it was about 07 or 08 up until the back end of last year um actually coached snc wise with all, all the age groups there so managed um, a pre-academy structure um, that we set up in place, strength and conditioning-wise, for all the, as they were called back then, EPDG players. Um, but my main priority, ultimately, was um, to, to look after a group of senior squad players for a number of years and develop them through and, and, and get the very best out of them and uh, support them with all the challenges along the way with uh, injuries and, and everything that comes with playing rugby as well. Oh, great. And and we spoke a little bit before, and obviously Leicester are one of the, you know, the great clubs of English rugby you know had some really successful periods and they're, they're always you know up there there and thereabouts come come playoff time um, and a lot of that well, certainly from people from outside they, they look and they see they've got that winning culture so you know tell us tell us a bit about that what's it like that sort of atmosphere and culture working in 
Yeah, people, I suppose, have got different perceptions of it and uh, different ways they describe it. I mean, I know Richard Cockrell always used to describe it as a, a brutal environment and um, it stemmed a lot, a lot, I suppose, from tradition, you know, um, because things had always been done a certain way in terms of expectations on players and whatnot. Um, that kind of naturally transferred through to, to other players, particularly those who maybe been through, through the academy structure. Which was a, a re really the, um, I suppose, the, the foundation of that. Um, but it did have a huge impact, I think, equally as well. There's, when you talk about cultural stuff, there's a lot of misconceptions that people can make as well um, in relation to how it actually is in reality. So from an SNC perspective, you know, it, it was it was a challenging environment to work in. But the type of challenging environment, I suppose, that enabled you to, to to push yourself and make sure what you were delivering as an SNC coach was was the very best because you had to rationalize everything um, and not just rationalize it in uh, deep science you also had to be able to rationalize it um, in the way to make it clear with the, the, the rugby coaches um, players who weren't interested in the science and bits and pieces like that um, so we, we were part of that you know our expectations to fit in with that culture to have that same work ethic were, were really big but you know at the same time um, professional sport by its nature doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's professional to the same degree there were <laughs> there, there were you know guys equally as with other rugby clubs in other sports um, that had different levels of, of, of application and um, they were the ones naturally from from a coaching perspective that uh, you, you had more challenge with but as a whole the, the, the culture compared to, to other clubs from what I understand you know I, I hadn't been in other clubs but from speaking to other coaches at other clubs um, was different and it, in many ways it made our, our job maybe a little bit easier but then at the same time with those expectations as well it also maybe made it a bit more challenging as well. Yeah definitely obviously that pressure to perform I guess. Um, so like now you're working at coalition performance um private sector what what are the sort of biggest things you've taken from from rugby and, and work in that environment that, that you're applying now i suppose one of the kind of ties in with, with one of your, uh, your previous guests on here is you know very early on in your career everything is um everything's textbooks everything's journals you know it's uh, it's research this and you know that's cool because you, you have got to have that background and that foundation to actually have you know reasoning behind what you're doing but then at the same time over the years you actually start to realize one of the biggest thing that's impacting on your effectiveness as a coach is, is is how you're working with the players that you are and i know it's become quite a quite a trendy topic in terms of that that whole coach athlete relationship and stuff like that but fucking you know it, it's it's a huge huge thing you know, you can have one coach with the greatest knowledge in the world, but if he hasn't got the ability to be able to tap in to, to that player's um, understanding and be able to get that player to buy into to, to, to the process, then all of that expertise, all of that knowledge can, can, can fall completely on its arse. So I think one of the biggest things that that's given me going to where I am now is the, the, the really serious side of that personal relationship, providing that structure that that person needs. But making them know that you're a huge part in being able to help them moving forwards because ultimately you know people will want to work with you and be motivated to, to train with you if you can do something which will help them yeah. and if they believe that, you, that you're that type of person regardless of whether they're a professional rugby player um, amateur rugby player or someone who doesn't even play sport then they're really going to buy into the process particularly if you can explain explain to them in a way that they understand of how what they're, is, what they're doing in the gym, for example, is going to relate to the end goal they want. Because I think one of the biggest challenges in, in SNC a lot of the time is people view the outcome as the training session. So 
get better at X exercise, where actually the, you know, the exercises and the tools that you use are merely just vehicles to get the outcome that you want. So as a professional rugby player, that would be, you know, to be able to, to score more points, to be able to make more metres when you go into contact, to, to have that effectiveness on the pitch. So I, th I think that my, my background for, from, from the professional rugby side is, is naturally kind of transferred into what I'm doing now quite well and being, you know, a huge, huge benefit. Yeah, definitely. I, I think you're, you're right. And it's, it's that balance of the art and science and and figuring out what people actually want. Because, yeah, you, you, we've all worked with people who, who love to squat, love to bend, you know, they proper love their S&C, those athletes. And they're kind of easy. You've already sold them. But it's those other guys who kind of are more more about the rugby and it's explaining how how improving you know these certain exercises or whatever it may be will actually carry over to rugby and it's and it's finding a way to actually explain it to them that they understand and they'll buy into and I, th I think you're definitely definitely right there i mean you know it's uh we, we used to say a number of times that you know you, you're almost becoming more and more almost like a salesman in terms of when you're coaching you're selling the the the, the, the training methods the rationale behind it you're selling it constantly to, to the players so they they invest into it so they invest their effort into it to make sure that you know the outcome is actually achieved, and that, that that's a real, real skill. Uh, and it's it, it's something I certainly don't claim to, to to be a master at, but it's something which over the years I've started to pay more and more and more attention to because actually a lot of the guys who had great engagement um, elsewhere in the sporting world as S and C coaches weren't necessarily the ones that had. Um, you know all the fancy technology they weren't the ones that talked in you know um, signaling pathways and all these these more deeper more scientific terms they were the guys who just could engage and get people on board in terms of selling what they do and then the players were naturally involved with it and, and can push forward from there yeah definitely definitely agree with that um, so conversely looking looking back at your time in rugby is there anything you do you do differently now uh, but in relation to the training or the coaching, or yeah, in terms of well, in terms of training or or, or what we were just talking about in terms of dealing with coaches and players. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose there's quite, there's quite a few things looking, <laughs> looking back there, looking back in hindsight. I mean, going back to what we were just speaking about, I think an appreciation of that sooner on um, would, would have been helpful. But then again, you you have got to have that kind of. Um, technical and more knowledge-based understanding to actually build the foundation for you to do to do those bits and pieces so you know that, that that would certainly certainly be one thing I think probably another thing is the again when you're in the gym and when you're doing S&C it's so easy to, to stay in that little S&C bubble um, and you know I've been there you know I'll hold my hands up to that and it's very easy to lose sight of, of the bigger picture of, of what you're trying to achieve um, and you know, when I speak to people, actually, the, the people who I feel are, are really bloody good at what they do are the ones that actually can explain it really simply. And it's because they get the big picture and it's because they don't actually have to impress you as well. And the big picture being they can actually relate what they're doing in the gym at that time or what they get people doing to the very outcome that they want. So f from my perspective, I suppose, over the years, the, the, like the, the coaches that I mentor now, I literally just take it to a four-point process. The first point is, okay, based on the athlete that you're working with, what actually underpins performance? And I'm talking not in terms of strength and that at this stage. I'm talking about what do we know significantly puts points on the board, for example. So we know, first of all, we know key player availability. So having your best players available is 
fucking huge. You know, yeah. you, you you know you rely on 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 those guys to, to to be able to put the points on the board and get the results. So you've got to have your best players fit. Um, you know, in a rugby perspective, we know that um, your backs, in general speaking, yeah, very generally. Um, their ability to be able to evade and make meters again was a key performance indicator. So there's another there in terms of our forwards in general. You know that momentum, so the ability to be able to make meters in contact as a byproduct of, of, of body mass and, and speed um, was again a huge key performance indicator. So that's the first point. So then it it was always working back from there. So okay, what physical qualities underpin that? So what like physiological qualities and vice versa underpin that? Then what kind of training methods would underpin that? And then actually the very last bit, which is usually the one that completely can fall flat on its ass, is how do you how do you practically apply that? You know, with the logistics of what you've got, so the schedule, the equipment you've got available, the manpower you've got available, group sizes. Shit, how do you actually put all that together and actually make that a, an awesome session? Um, because you could take you know a session from a, a research journal um, and it'd be horrendous because it'd be monotonous, it'd be boring, it probably wouldn't work in large numbers. So um, again, go, go, going back to, to the Ashley Jones interview, that um, ability to be able to um, piece together all that bit up top that we spoke about into actually a training session that will engage players, but at the same time still tap into the very things that you're trying to improve. So I, th I think that kind of holistic way of looking at things in relation to SNC and performance was, would, would probably be another big thing. And if, if I knew that, if I got my head around that sooner, it, it would have been, it, you know, it would have made life a bit easier. But then you have to go through those other experiences, I suppose, to get to get to that, that point and that outcome. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of kind of putting the whole the whole thing together you've got that scientific rationale of, of what actually matters and then you then you work out how with you know within your environment with your players um your time constraints whatever it might be you actually work how that will actually fit in and, and like you said <clears throat> no matter what research you've got it's got to fit your environment and, and who you're working with as well Oh, it's huge, and it's it's very easy. I think, um, and again, I'll hold I'll hold my, my hands up to it as well. It's very easy when you're in your little um, club club bubble or, or you know institute bubble to be quite cynical of, of what goes on outside of your realms. But going back to that model there, you could all be working towards the same bits. Obviously, you're not, but you could be. But that bottom tier in terms of the logistics, because we all have different things available to us in terms of resources and whatnot, um, would mean actually the training sessions would look very different. That's not because that other person's doing a, doing a crap job. It's because actually they might have they might not have two extra coaches. They might not have the equipment available. They might have to take a group of twenty five guys at once. So it, it can be quite easy to be judgmental like, like that. But I think the beauty of being able to look at something really broadly and holistically, like, like looking at those four stages, is that regardless of who you speak to, whether it's other SNC coach, whether it's director of rugby, whether it's a rugby player who hasn't got a clue about SNC, um, you can you can talk about it in as much detail as is necessary because ultimately you understand the very bare bones of what you're talking about you understand the simple things so if you need to talk about it in a bit more detail cool you can do that but equally if you just need to speak about it really simply again you've got the ability to be able to do that so i think that's always a really key defining factor of somebody who really knows what what, what they're talking about yeah definitely and going back to what you said just previously i i think it's difficult to go in like if you see one session from some from from another coach it's really difficult to kind of get you know to kind of assess their whole you know protocol or program because it's one session in isolation you know which is constrained by all these things we've discussed um you kind of need to see the whole picture and and understand it so yeah, i think you know we shouldn't be kind of 
overcritical when you see uh, you know only a snapshot of what people are actually doing i think you're right there yeah i couldn't agree more and particularly you know there's <laughs> there's even darker things that go on you know politics of coaching pressures and bits and pieces like that could, can play a huge impact in again what the the snc coach has available to him to be able to, to execute on, on certain sessions so yeah over the years i've, <laughs> I've become more and more uh uh, empathetic, I suppose, to be able to actually think about, you know, shit, put, put, put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. You know, if, if, they've get, if they're getting heat from the DOR about certain certain bits and pieces, um, if, if they haven't got the greatest of manpower um, and vice versa, you know, it, it can often be very easy when you're in a more comfortable position to point the finger when actually if, you, if you're in that position, shit, you might actually struggle to do, uh, to do any better job than they could. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, Dave... You explained you've worked through all the different age groups at, at Leicester, which obviously gives you a, a great kind of perspective. Um, and when when working with a younger player, how do you approach things differently to to like a seasoned pro? Yeah, I, I, I think the kind of I suppose athletic development side of stuff. If you want, you want to use any of the terms. I think it's a, it, it's, it's a bit of a minefield. It's a, it's a real grey area because, but by, by default, you know, uh, maturation and everything is a, is a grey area. But I think it can be very easy, particularly from um, well any type of training perspective. But S and C in this example, to to not really have a clear direction with, with what you're doing, particularly again looking at the the, the grand scheme of things. Um, so I mean, t- taking taking the project that um, started years years ago at Leicester, you know, we had the biggest problem of we had a, a really big academy, um, but a large proportion of players would come in day one of pre-season to the academy. And they could lift weights, but they, they couldn't do it well. You know, te- technically they were poor. And we're talking at even basic exercises. And it took months and months and months for the coaches to be able to actually rectify those technical problems because they spent years and years prior to that, obviously going through that early maturation process of putting in, um, you can call it movement patterns, I suppose, and ways of executing movement, which aren't particularly good for being able to effectively do S&C. Um, so for our perspective, it was right, okay, what are we, if we're going to start working with these um, players 13, 14, 15 years of age, what's the actual purpose of it? Yes, we want to make them better rugby players, but where's the connection between the S&C you're doing on the pitch and making them a better rugby player? Because there's a huge grey area between those things and a huge amount of assumptions. So what we, what we actually said is, look, our main priority is we want the guys to be able to lift more effectively when they come in. And to be able to move as rugby players more effectively when they come in, you know, if you've got a, um, a front row player who has got no awareness of being able to move at his hips and keep his spine nicely neutral and locked in, that's going to have a huge impact on his ability to break down in relation to scrum posture and vice versa. So it, it transfers into so many things. So we wanted to be able to have the guys hit the ground running far quicker. So we wouldn't have lag time with their development. So actually, they were developing as best as possible from day one as opposed to actually having to wait months down the line while they're getting technically proficient at stuff, which they could have been doing far sooner. So we put together this programme, which again, logistically was difficult. We basically said to the, the, the rugby coaches, look, we're going we're to take 50% of your time with these players each week. And within a, a training session, we're going to um, do blocks of S&C with obviously you doing blocks of rugby. Um, and it, it, it actually, it, it ended up being a relatively easy sell because the rugby coaches really bought into it because they could see the benefits. And equally, it meant that there were short, sharp blocks of work, like 10 minute blocks. So it kept things really nice and fresh with the players because, you know, kids don't have the biggest uh, attention span. Yeah. So with us, that process was all about, we're going to get them technically proficient at the lifts 
that they will be doing most likely when they come into the first year of the academy. And, and, and literally that was the main focus because we knew if we did that, we knew that they'd be able to move better on the rugby pitch. We knew that they'd be able to get far more benefit sooner from their from their S&C training. And then as a byproduct, um, we knew that there would be more than likely a number of other additional benefits in terms of the development, in terms of injury, in terms of just um, general um, skill um, skill acquisition and vice versa um, that they could benefit from. But they're the, they're the more greyer areas. We wanted to make sure, first and foremost, we were influencing something that we knew we could definitely influence, and that was being able to speed up their um, ability to be able to, to perform more effective S&C. So with that little time span, that, 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 that's how we looked at it. So we had a very clear thing we're going to improve, thing that we put into place to make sure we know it will improve it, and there hopefully will be additional benefits aside from that. But I think it's very easy when you're, when you're doing athletic development work and, as, as an S&C coach with athletes to... To, to invest time in things which you're not actually sure of how beneficial they're going to be to actually to, to work, um, particularly when you've got limited time with them as well. And then obviously from them, when you start as a full-time academy player, the, the, the context is changing, isn't it? You've got far more resources available. The time that you spend training is far more different. And again, that would, that would, that would differ between situations and clubs. Um, but then they've got the physical, I suppose, the physical foundations to be able to do um, proper resistance training um, more effectively and start to move them into a, a direction that's more advanced, I suppose, um, as, as they grow up and go towards a senior rugby player. Um, but yeah, we, we knew by doing that we'd get them moving more effectively so we could hit the ground running. We know that injury-wise we'd be able to make them more physically robust to tolerate the demands of going into um, academy training. And then from there, yeah, be able to speed up their development, I suppose. Yeah, you covered so many good points there. Um, obviously, and it's kind of what you're saying with those four points earlier. You have that sort of rationale of really knowing what you want to improve, and then then you find the most efficient and effective way of doing it within your constraints. So it's um, that's some, some great points there. Um, we, and, so, sorry, Karen. I was just going to say actually, one of the interesting things that we did that is it's so hard to objectively monitor kind of how your S&C impacts on development because naturally they'll physically develop even if you didn't do S&C with them. Yeah. But for us, we, we over years, because we had time with this, was able to say that within about 18 months of these kind of one training sessions per week with the um, um, combined with the rugby coaches, that we could get them proficient at the movements um, under load as well. So a lot of the time I think... Um, we're going to hold of a realm here of, of movement screens, but um, if you're comp to be competent at an exercise under no load and be competent at an exercise under a degree of load are two very different separate skills. We know that yeah, if you're good at one, doesn't necessarily mean that's going to have transform and uh, be able to transform into the other. Um, so when we monitor players to actually see how well they were at getting um, to be able to execute these exercises that they'll do under a degree of load, we found out that pretty much it was about an 18-month period with this one time per week exposure that it took um, as a whole in general um, those group of players to be able to get to what we called like a tiger standard whereby they'd be in a position to be able to, to, to kind of hit the ground running with their training there. So again, that was a nice way for us to be able to kind of, as objective as you could do, see how things would, would improve. And we looked at other stuff like concentric, vertical jump height and, and all sorts of bits and pieces. But again, you know, <laughs> you, you could do nothing with them and they'd still improve. So it's always difficult to be able to separate between what you do and obviously what Mother Nature does as well. Yeah, definitely. And so talking about those sort of things and, and getting into sort of monitoring and stuff, um, how, how have you used 
data and technology at Leicester in the past, um, and and also, I mean, you touched on sort of research. Um, do do you follow research, or is your coaching impacted a lot by by the research, or do you kind of just use it as that background information? Yeah, I mean, I I, I was really fortunate to be particularly the period I was there to be to be involved with. Uh, uh, a setup which was, uh, you know, well resourced, but but not just that had very very good direction. You know, my <clears throat> my boss for that period, um, Alex Martin, who isn't one of the kind of household Twitter names of uh, of S and C. Uh, he's he 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 in terms of putting a program together um, and fitting into all the bits and pieces. I suppose that we've been talking about is being the best person I've, I've literally ever come across at that, um, and an absolute kind of—I won't use the word genius because I know you'd be embarrassed—but it, it absolutely outstanding at that. Um, and that that meant that um, we had lots of different things going on, which were quite—I suppose you could say—exciting. Some which worked, some some which didn't work at all. But that's part of learning. Um, and we did, um, you know, we did adopt GPS early on. Um, we did um, adopt. Um, um, you know, research in-house into analytics and looking at what actually underpins performance. And we did get a lot out of that. But equally, we also realised that we also didn't get a lot out of certain bits of it as well. Um, it'll be interesting to see over over the years, I think, in, in professional sport, how particularly things like analytics get used because I think at the moment they're, they're very attractive, they're very new. But as people start to find out more about them, actually, how people's opinions will change because there's certainly big ways which I think technology can support um, you know what we do as strength and conditioning coaches but I, I do think in balance it, it can be over pushed a little bit I think um, the <laughs> the sexy side of having great technology uh, fancy data um, can sometimes be yeah can sometimes overshadow actually the the real key qualities that are actually the ability of somebody to be able to coach. Um, so for, for, for me, for example, technology was brilliant from a GPS perspective um, at figuring out what a, a player's normal training week would be, um, an individual player's training week. So when they got injured, um, I had a clear snapshot of where I needed to get them back to. Yeah. So because I knew what performance was in terms of match day, but also training, again, it, it then me meant I could reverse engineer backwards. Okay, these are the steps that we need to go through. This is the journey we need to be able to create to get them back up to that point. Because I think it's very easy, particularly when you're working with injuries, to kind of be working towards very vague things. Whereas if you know, right, I'm working towards um, on the heaviest training in the day, they're doing this much volume. They're doing um, this much at this intensity. They're doing this many change of directions at this intensity. It means that you can very, very precisely reintegrate that player back up to that um, back up to that point as well. Um, so G GPS, for example, was a, a, a great way of being able to do that. And I think the analytics side, being able to actually pinpoint what what underpins performance. So obviously, when we first started speaking. I knew there were certain key criteria that we could uh, impact on as SNC coaches because there's lots of performance things that we can't influence as SNC coaches. But fuck, there are some really key bits that we can do. So by actually knowing what those things are, which might not necessarily be the same depending on um, the club you're at and vice versa, um, by knowing those exact things, it meant we had real laser focus on actually what our training was trying to improve as well. Um, so again, I think that, that was another key thing. But I, I, just in my opinion, I do think that 
at this moment in time, the technology side of, 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 of sports science, and that can sometimes overshadow the most important thing, which is actually the, 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 the coach's ability. Um, you know, we used to say you could have a, um, a database which would tell you um, how fresh a player is, you know, how well they've slept, where they're sore. But you know what? The best measure of that is actually the coach just asking that player themselves, you know, because that you'll get far more, much more information out of them rather than just a number. And a lot of the time with those type of systems, um, it's all retrospective. It's not actually real time. So you can't actually make informed decisions um, in the moment. Um, so, yeah, you know, even though there, I think there are certain things that can be a benefit as discussed, um, it will be interesting to see how, how technology, I think, impacts uh, professional sport because um, that I think there's a lot of things that are being talked about and a lot of big claims being made which actually in in reality i don't think there's a great deal of evidence to support them yeah it, it's difficult isn't it because you know all the clubs are under so much pressure you know to be successful and there's you know all these different bits of technology coming out and everyone wants to get the next big thing um and but you kind of want to you want to avoid you know any fads but then like you said you've got to try some things to realize you know they are no good or, or whether there is value to them um, oh so no, a hundred percent. But I think, like the example I gave with the, you know, um, monitoring certain bits and pieces when actually, you know, fuck, you could just just as a coach, you can actually ask the player. I think yeah, on the outside, sometimes things can look quite attractive. But actually, when you see them um, running in the day-to-day -day world of, of your environment, your club, your organisation, you actually start to realise that actually, the, you know, in, in practice, they don't quite work the, the, the way that you expected, um, which is obviously a huge thing because, you know, time pressures, um, everyone wants a piece of the players and bits and pieces means that, you know, we don't have ages to be able to, to have players doing this, doing that and vice versa. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, definitely. Now, this is a question we, are, we ask all our guests. Um, dead simple is, what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make uh, when it comes to strength and conditioning? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where do we begin? Uh, look, I mean, uh, um, it's easy to be, I suppose, judgmental as, as an SNC coach because it, it, fuck, it's your trade, isn't it? You know, you've got to know what you're doing. But um, I think, you know, if I, if I think back, particularly when I, I was younger and I didn't have a clue what I was doing, obviously you're just following any information you've got, what your mate does. And there's so much information out on the internet now, literally, it's overwhelming. Um, but I think one of the things that, that, that I observe, particularly, I mean, um, probably again thinking about some of your listeners and bits and pieces who don't have um, you know a professional club that they're associating themselves to and all that support and one of the biggest problems is is when they're when you're in the, in the weight room doing <laughs> doing too much in terms of exercises so one of the biggest surprises that, that, that players and, and people who we work we now have when they first um, come to us is actually there isn't like you know a shitload of exercises um, and the reason is, is because we know exactly what they need to do to become better at what they want and the specific things which are going to lead there and the constraints of how their body moves and injuries and bits and pieces. I could choose like eight different exercises, but why don't I just pick four, four exercises, for example, which are going to address those key things in the best way possible and put all my eggs into those baskets? Because, you know, if I think back when I used to train, because you're not entirely sure how a certain exercise or training method can improve the thing that you want, say for example you want to get quicker, so you know you've got to get stronger and more powerful, you know there's a hundred million different things you could do, so usually people think shit I better do this, 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 this and this, hoping that you know a little bit of what they throw at the wall will actually stick, 
where actually one of the best things you can do is instead of hoping part of it will stick, you want to make sure that every single rep of every single set is the very best thing to take you forwards towards your goal. So I think players um, and people involved in sport who, who want to benefit from the S&C shouldn't feel the need that they have to do lots and lots and lots of stuff. You know, it's what we used to call the kitchen sink approach, just throw everything in there. It's far better to be far more informed of what you're doing. Decide on what that is and then put everything in, into that basket. So just as a, a little bit of an example, you know, um, it can differ even between people who have the same goals. So you might have two, um, I don't know, you might have two scrum halves, for example. Obviously, acceleration is a huge factor. However, one might have um, a great back squat. So a back squat is a movement which we know the limiting factor will be their ability to generate force, not their ability to execute the movement. Whereas the other one, actually, his te technique on it because lumbar problems, because of ankle mobility issues, his squat might be pretty crap. So instead of just having him squat and, uh, and trying to be able to do that, we'd actually then look, okay, then what other lower limb exercise could he do, which will still lead to the same outcomes that we want, um, but will still allow him to develop and improve in the, in, in the best way possible, and then putting all the eggs into the basket of that, rather than feeling the need, right, okay, I better do a bit of back squatting, but because I'm not so great at that, I'm going to do some deadlifting, then I'm going to do some lunging, and feeling there's that big need. So I think my advice always to players is, you know, think about what you need to, to develop, know what it is that you've got to be able to, to, to improve and the training tools you can use and do the stuff that you're bloody good at that you can really execute on where force is the limiting factor, not technique, um, and, and hedge your bets on that. And you'll be shocked at how much quicker you improve as opposed to just trying to do a load of stuff um, just because you think the professionals do it. Yeah, definitely. I think you could, you could show uh, an athlete or you know even myself, I looked at a program and there was 10 exercises I'd straight away pick pick which ones I was going to put most of my effort into because you you can't just you, you've only got enough energy for you know a certain amount of to, to adapt uh, so to speak so um, just pick pick the ones you're going to get the most bang for your buck for and, and put all that energy into that. Well, you hit a great point there as well. You know, if yeah. you're a player, um, if you're a player of any standards, you know, if you're going to the gym and you look at your sheet and it's got a shitload of stuff on there, instantly you're thinking, "Crikey, I'm pushed for time." Typically, then what happens is you're not using the rest periods that it should be. You're probably going to get a little bit lazy with your technique. And again, you're not actually going to be motivated to do the session as much because you're going to feel that you're playing catch up because you've got so much to get through. However, if you've got a few things on there, which you know you, know you can really grip and rip into, you know you can definitely do within the time frame. You can use the right rest periods to get the very best out of that exercise, get the intensity required. All of a sudden, that's a big thing, and that's actually one of the things that um, during my last season, I had a player come to me from another club, and that's the exact point that he made about being able to focus on doing less but really good was when he turned up. He wasn't in that initial panic of, oh, shit, you know, I've got to use all this equipment. I might have to queue for this, queue for that. He thought, right, I've got this to do, this to do, this to do, this to do. Let's go down and, and actually get it done. So, no, you're right. I think it has a big impact on, on that type of uh, yeah, your motivation towards the session as well. Yeah, and and also I think it's um, like with with British Cycling's, um, you know, they they advertise so much their their marginal gains, so people are always looking to get those, you know, one or two percent when they're not taking care of the big, you know, ninety five percent of 
you know, oh, yeah. big compound lifts, you know, increasing force development and things like that. Oh, you know, I couldn't agree more. And uh, it's, uh, you know, and that, that's a big impact with nutrition as well, you know. And usually people use that as an excuse, you know, that, that you know, they're, they're worrying about the micro when they, they can completely overlooking the macro and you have to get them to step back for a moment and think you know shit look you know you're talking about this being a problem croggy you're not even doing this so the example you're talking about about there is you know yeah someone can do all the speed work they want in the world but if they haven't been strength training for the best part of four or six weeks that's gonna have a huge impact on their ability to generate force power rfd and consequently they're not going to get the, the the outcome that they want, and I suppose that's that's a big part of being being an S and C coach as well. It's being able to manage those expectations um, because it is sexy to go after the micro, isn't it? You know, all those bits and pieces. But um, it's quite interesting as well when you hear about marginal gains and bits and pieces. The 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 press is um, reporting on on that and the actual reality of what that was. Um, I, I think, um, from, from what I'm aware, to two, two very different things as well. I think as well with your athletes as well, if you're always pushing the micro and forgetting the macro, it, it almost creates a culture as well of avoiding, avoiding, the hard, avoiding the hard work sometimes, because I think that the macro stuff can be the more challenging stuff. You know, it's your big lifts and, and, and everything like that. Sometimes the more monotonous stuff, but just because it's not sexy and it can be a bit monotonous doesn't actually mean that it's one of the most important things. And I think sometimes players like the like the sexy stuff because um, it can allow them to get away from the stuff which is actually more important but usually requires a, a tad more effort. Yeah, definitely. Totally agree. Um, so looking, looking to the future, how do you see things sort of changing in, in strength and conditioning in terms of rugby? Um, yeah, I... You mentioned this question to me. I actually had to think about it because um, I wasn't really too sure. I, th I think the first thing was what we talked about in terms of how technology will be impacting on um, on strength and conditioning. Um, whether at the moment it's kind of in a little bit of a honeymoon period and actually um, what people will start to conclude when they actually start to get some, some real um, kind of long-term data and an analysis out of that of actually what's impacting what. Because, you know, it is a big investment for clubs. Um, but I think the other thing is, I think more and more, because players are coming through systems where at a younger age they're getting better educated at SNC. So, you know, every academy now has SNC staff, you know, even players who aren't coming from academies have got SNC support. You've got SNC available on the internet and everything like that. And it almost means now that everybody's becoming a bit of an expert. And I think one of the things that I was starting to observe um, as, as, as I was finishing off in Premiership Rugby was there was definitely players being a lot more aware and self-conscious of their opinion on S&C. And I think that's going to be something that gets more and more compounded over the years as players become more and more educated and upskilled on it. And I think that's going to be a huge challenge for the S&C coach because, you know, ultimately you're, you're employed to be an expert in that, in that role. Um, and yes, you've got to listen to your players and, and everything like that. But if um, if you can't manage expectations um, and if you can't um, still provide the structure um, that's there, you know, you're making yourself almost obsolete. Um, and I think that'll be one of the biggest challenges as, as players become more knowledgeable. It'll be more challenging for S&C coaches to be able to to. Um, to get buy into the program, I suppose, because people are going to have far more opinions. Um, so I, I, I think that's a really big one. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because, like, say everyone, everyone kind of has an opinion, 
and uh, it, it almost touches on what we're talking about the kind of marginal gains thing is that um, everyone has an opinion on how you know how you can slightly prescribe things differently but so long as those you know the most important things are in place you know you can have that kind of variety but it's yeah it's 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 an interesting one kind of almost keeping everyone happy but making sure yeah. <laughs> making well, sure you're covering those bases it's it's a it's a huge challenge like you know it's <laughs> it's one when you where, you know it's one that's very difficult to see from the outside world but yeah you know you you, you have to have a structure you have to have a you have to have a, yeah, a system in place just because you have structure you know having have, providing structure as a coach is very different to being controlling as a coach you know people usually see the two running tandem they're very separate things you know control is do it my way this is the only way i'm not going to listen to you structure is about providing um, all the bits and pieces with rationale as to, to, to why you're doing it why it's best practice but there's a degree of movement within that structure but there will become a point where you can step outside that structure and that's the challenge i think of the snc coaches you know if, if you've just got a player doing their doing their own session you're you're <laughs> you then become obsolete so it's about making sure you do have structure you do listen to people you do have that um flexibility to be able to um still achieve what you need to but for it to be like malleable to, to fit the individual but also have that point where you know there is a structure you know a structure does it does have limits to it and if you step outside those limits well you know th that, that that's not actually buying into the program and that will become more and more challenging i think as players become um, greater and greater um, um, experts in what they do but you know i always used to say you know to, to, to players as well it, it's all down to trust isn't it and um if a player said to me you know i if my expertise is strength and conditioning my expertise wasn't for example to be able to box kick a ball or to be able to throw a ball in the line out if one of my players um, was coaching me to be a um, better line out thrower um, as an snc coach or a better box kicker as an snc coach i'd listen to everything they'd say because even though i'd have my opinions because i know about the body i'd trust their judgment because they're an expert in that and i think that's the line that players have to be able to, to see as well that they do have awareness of their body. You've got to listen to them, particularly as they become more and more experienced and more and more um, understanding in SNC. But at the same time, there still needs to be that trust and mutual respect that um, you will listen to them. You take everything on board, but equally, you 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 you're employed and you're there to support them and to put your expertise into best practice. And therefore, there does have to be that structure there ultimately. Yeah, and and it also it, it does go back to the the Ashley Jones conversation where he he said you've kind of got the four quadrants where you know obviously the younger younger athletes, you know this is what you're doing. There's no discussion, and, and as you go through, there's more and more discussion until it's almost you know they're that experienced that you can kind of you can give them your you know your your advice and through your expertise but ultimately they have a lot more say in it so um yeah it's, it's, it's very good points there um i feel i feel like we could talk all day dave um some some really good um you know information for the listeners and um i'm sure they get a huge amount out of it but l lastly where can people learn s some more about yourself um yeah well uh obviously got our, our website um, um we're pretty active on social media um, co-performance is our, our Twitter um, Twitter account and the Facebook account going to probably delve into the world of Snapchat soon for my, my own perils um, <laughs> but I do, do a lot of um, a lot of um, blogging and posting um, on the site and social media particularly targeted at kind of um, not your professional level kind of athletes um, but your kind of 
you know, weekend warriors, your amateur rugby players and bits and pieces like that to be able to provide support support there so people can get in touch and, and, and give us a shout in multiple ways whatever they deem uh, whatever they deem necessary brilliant Dave thanks very much um, all the best with the uh, coalition performance and um, just thanks for taking the time to, to chat with us awesome thank you very much enjoyed it cheers thanks for listening to episode 4 of the Rugby Renegade podcast uh, we'd also like to thank Dave uh, Cripps for taking the time to speak to us and I'm sure you, you learned a lot from him uh, so what to do next check us out on social media Facebook, Twitter, Instagram whatever's your bag and um, please subscribe to us on iTunes SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher again whichever one you use and uh, give us a good review and of course subscribe and there's more coming so stay tuned Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at rugbyrenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.